0: 1 John, chapter 2, verses 3 to 14. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his words, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you you have had since the beginning. This old commandment is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new commandment. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Let me, oh, sorry. I'm writing to you. Dear children, because you know the Father, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one.
1: Well... I welcome you as well. My name's Pete. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church, and it's a pleasure to have you uh, gathering together this morning. And uh, I'm really pleased that Grace actually tripped over those verses 12 to 14, because we're not actually going to look at them this morning. They're part of the passage. They sort of act as a bridge between what we're looking at in this section that goes up to verse 11 and then what comes next in verse 15. And uh, in our prayer meeting, which is online this Wednesday evening, I'm going to look at those verses as an encouragement for us again as we think about our identity in Christ. But it's right, it should trip us up because it's like, whoa, wait a sec, John's just saying the same thing it sounds again, why? And so come along on Wednesday to find out why and and how awesome it is that he does repeat those truths about um, who we are in Christ. So this morning we're going to concentrate mainly on verses um, 3 of chapter 2 through to 11. And uh, I've also printed up, I, I do work from a sermon script. Sometimes I um, do go ad-lib and stuff like this, but I appreciate for people for whom English isn't their first language that I can speak very quickly, and that isn't helpful. So there are some sermon scripts. If you would like to just use those, Grace can hand those out if you want, or you can pick it up at the end. Or if it would be helpful to have that before the service, let me know, and we can sort out a way of getting that to you. Well, how do you know you're on the right track? Uh, Last night, a few people from Grace Church, along with Redeemer Church, were... um, successfully completing, and they have completed it, no one was injured, the Rivington Pike 10K night run. Now, one of the most important things about this run is that you know where you're going in the darkness. So the race organizers do stress that you've got to wear a head torch, and they reassure runners that the course is gonna be marked with reflective sights. Because they don't want people sprinting off the pike, which is a big hill, like a lemming in a high-vis jacket. That wouldn't look good on their publicity photos. You see, those, those markers, those reflective indicators, are signs that you're on the right track. And you're staying on the right path. They provide reassurance. But take that picture and then think, what about real life? Everyday life? How do we know we're on the right track? What are our indicators? What are the pointers on our path? What markers give me an accurate picture of how life is going? Is it academic success? Whether you're in year six as the children downstairs, we have some year sixes who are getting ready to go to secondary school. We have youth in with us at the moment who are considering their GCSEs. And from there to A-levels, and from A-levels to uni, and from uni beyond? Is academic success one of those helpful markers? What about a secure job? Is that an accurate marker of success? I was only listening to the radio last night as I was washing up on LBC, and they had a phone-in on pensions. And there was a 29-year-old just saying how much she had realised pensions are so vital. And that as in her 20s, she wasn't really thinking about it, and now she is. it's kind of everything that shapes what she does, workwise. Is that an accurate, healthy indicator and marker? What about good health? That's another marker we look to, isn't it? Happy family life. How much of the world have I visited and seen and enjoyed? How cultured am I? Are these the markers we look at to see, are we on the right track in life? Can they provide the real assurance that we're living a good life? Well, many people throughout history, in society at the moment, say, yeah, they're brilliant markers. They do the job. They give me something to aim for. They keep me going. But what about if you're here as a Christian? Do those markers fit in? Are they the main ones in your life? How do you know you're on the right path with God? How do we really know that God knows us? How do I really know that I know God? Well, you see, the Apostle John, he's wrestling with those questions for the Christians he's pastoring in Turkey, and this is in the late part of the first century, probably about 80 to 90 AD, and he wants to give them the assurance they need. To know that they're on the right track. He's already outlined two tests or indicators of an authentic relationship with God in chapter one, which we looked at last week. They're both theological indicators, markers. The first is believing the eyewitness apostles' message about Jesus, who is the word of life, who gives eternal life, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That's the first theological marker. Do you believe the message we've been given as apostles and handing on to you about Jesus Christ? You see, John wants us and his listeners to know the absolute reality of Jesus' bodily real life, the incarnation, God as man. Fully God, fully man, living on earth. Seen, heard, touched. The next theological test is there in verses 5 to 10. And it's admitting that we as people have a real problem with this horrible word called sin. Authentic Christians on the right track with God own the truth that we are rebels against him in every aspect of our lives. That we run then from that Owning our sin, we run to him, confessing our sins and asking for forgiveness. That's there in verses 5 to 10. That's another authentic theological marker. We are people who gladly rely on the forgiveness and the purification that only Jesus Christ, who's described as the perfect righteous one, has given us through his sacrificial death on the cross. That's chapter 2 verses 1 to 2. And so there now is a moral marker, a moral indicator for us. How we live shows what we believe. How we live shows what we believe. When John Wesley, the the Methodist preacher who spent most of his life traveling around the UK on horseback to meet with thousands and thousands of people preaching the gospel, when he left home, Susanna, his mother, is said to have written on the following words in his Bible— Sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. You see, God's word in us, with the conviction of his Holy Spirit, means we don't lie about our sin. We desire to stop sinning. We want to keep walking in the light of Christ. And when we disobey God, when we have foolishly acted on our sinful desires... We are not abandoned. That's the assurance that John gives in chapter 1 and chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. We have an advocate standing with God the Father. That's John's description. Have a look at it. You've got your Bibles open or it's on your phones. Chapter 2, verse 1. It's an amazing word, an advocate. Jesus is like the barrister in a court of law who has a hundred percent success rate winning a not guilty verdict for his people that's what he does and this verdict is given not by some detached distant judge but from God the loving father who is faithful and merciful and delights to forgive the sins of all those who trust his son that's the picture. And you can see how, therefore, how rock solid, assuring this truth is for us and for John's original congregations. Especially if we're facing hard times because our faith, because of our faith. If we're facing hard times because of our faith, come here. Come into these verses. See what God has done. But let's be very clear with all of this, we're not earning points with God. Now, it's important to remember that the theological markers that have just been given aren't a test like walking into a school exam room. One of the great things about meeting in this school is we've got so much space. One of the horrible things about it is you get a flashback coming in, just, oh, no, test, particularly around May and June. Uh, these tables all lined up. It brings me out. I hate it each time, you know put down your pens. I haven't written anything. Um, it's not that test. It's not that exam. We're not filling out exam answer sheets and waiting for months for the result. Don't misunderstand. These tests John describes are not a case of needing to score 501 out of 1,000 how to please God points. No. John the Baptist's preaching in John's gospel, John three thirty six, makes it so clear. And as you're reading 1 John, just as a note, keep going back to John's gospel. You've got to read the, two, the letter and the gospel together. They help each other interpret and understand one another. But in John's gospel, in John 3, we hear John the Baptist say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the beauty. Eternal life is given by Jesus. It flows out of a response to live his way. And so the Apostle John is convinced that his listeners are all those who trust this gospel message. They're in fellowship with him and with God the Father, the Son. That's there in chapter 1, verse 3. That's an assurance for us today, especially as we come to these verses and hear these commands. This is where our assurance lives. And therefore, in chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, the section we're looking at, John gets us to focus, therefore, on the ethical and moral response to this great gift. Because how we live is a good indicator of whether or not we're on the right path with God, whether or not we know him and we love him. And so put simply, authentic Christians obey Jesus. And we've just got two points today. Here's the first one here are commands we obey. Verses three to six. Let's have a look at those verses. We know that we have come to know him, that's God the Father through God the Son in Christ Jesus, chapter two, verse two, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. How, John, how? Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. John has a very direct way of teaching. At times, his black and whiteness, as it were, his binary zeros and ones, will make us go, oh, really? Uh can we have some footnotes and caveats? Live as Jesus did. And John positively states it in verses 3 and 6 that to know God in Christ Jesus is to do what he commands. It means following Jesus' example. End off. If I said I love ballroom dancing, you would laugh, maybe, because I don't strike you as your typical. You don't see me turning up in these sort of sparkly shirts and... Uh, you know, um, tango trousers or whatever, but um, if I love ballroom dancing and named all the the names of the dances and said I'm really good at it, well, there's only one way to see, isn't there? What would it be? Get on the dance floor and it would be atrocious. (laughs) The fake Christians The false teachers who started to disrupt these Turkish Christians in their churches that John was looking after, they were claiming they had the true knowledge of God. We know God. They were claiming they had the secret source, as it were, the secret insight, the truly enlightened ones. And therefore, the other Christians were somehow missing out. It was like they were only half there, like learners with their L plates still on. Yeah, 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 you're doing okay, but you're not quite there. But now this secret knowledge could be given by these false teachers. But John won't have any of it. He asks, how are they living? Do they actively follow Jesus' example? Only by obeying him. Can we say we know God? Now, I appreciate this is not a popular view today, even in Christian circles, even in good Bible teaching churches. Talk of obeying God's word is quickly dismissed as legalism. Christians can easily go, oh, you're just being legalistic, telling me what to do. And that is the opposite of loving, apparently. One journalist writing an opinion piece in a, a daily newspaper this week made it very clear that the way the church can show genuine love and care for people is to recognize and bless marriages between same-sex couples. That was the, the, the piece in the uh, opinion bit. That it, it was clearly argued, it was passionately written, it was sincerely written, but it just didn't engage at all with Jesus' commands on sexual purity. At all didn't even look at the New Testament teaching. It didn't consider that the church's primary function is to love God first. That the church's primary function is to put all other loves, all other desires that we carry in this life under that love. The journalist's argument, understandably, was largely based on how they felt And also, the ever-changing need to be relevant and culturally acceptable. Again, imagine a married couple having a dinner on their 20th anniversary. And after the first course, the husband starts the conversation. I love you so much, but I need to tell you I'm having an affair. It's an absolute contradiction. It's so obvious to see. And yet, in our walk with the Lord... We can be blinded by the lie, the thinking, it's the truth because it suits us. We can be blinded by this that I can do what I want, that obedience is kind of on my terms. God's loving, that's fine. Verse four the truth is not in that person. We need to guard against self deception. The Christian who says they no longer need to obey God or Christ's word because I just love him needs to hear Jesus saying in John 15, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. Obedience was a non-negotiable for Jesus the Son. It's a non-negotiable for those who follow him because that is the place of living in God's love. We follow a savior who loved the father perfectly in unswerving obedience. Grace, God's grace does not abolish his law. It doesn't take away the moral law. It internalizes it. That is the powerful change that takes place by the Holy Spirit. It brings us, he writes it on our hearts. The authentic believer therefore says, God knows best, I trust that, and that is the way I want to go. God knows best, and that is the way I want to go. Now this is the link with verse five. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God or God's love is truly made complete in them. You see, this is positive. This is power at work in us. The more we obey God's word, the more we open ourselves up to his love, which fuels our desire to do his will, to follow his purpose for our lives. It's an amplifier. Imagine if you were detoxing or deciding to have a a very healthy uh, month where you decide, okay, I'm going to cut out chocolate or maybe, um, you know, reduce your alcohol, maybe cut it out con- entirely or something like that, and you're going on this health drive, and, and it's hard for the first few days, as you, you sort of, oh, it would be nice to either have a, a, a nice glass of wine with a meal or something like that, or that chocolate bar fruit and nut for me, you know, ah. Oh. but no, I, I'm not doing that, I've got another goal in mind now. And after a couple of weeks, you lose the taste of it. You're enjoying other stuff. You can feel the benefit, and that amplifies, and so it carries on. To obey God is to enjoy his love. And as we go further into his obedience, we know more of that delight to follow his purposes in our lives. Again, John is realistic. No one is perfectly obedient. He's not arguing that in chapter 1, and he's not arguing that here. That's why walking in the light, loving God, means consistently, frequently confessing our sins, as we looked at last week. But it does mean this, and the theologian Calvin put it really succinctly when he said, Those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity, to form their life in obedience to God. That's the aim. What he's saying is that consistent willingness and a desire to make progress in God's direction is crucial. And what a relief that God knows our capacities. I love how Calvin put that, the capacity of human infirmity. God knows us. He knows our capacity. He knows our circumstances. He is not a slave driver crushing us, but a loving father who wants us to be more fruitful, to enjoy him more. And the beauty of following God's word is that they are not dry commands, they're words that are filled with life, they're life giving promises. Listen to this as Jesus said it to his disciples in John 15, verses 7 to 8. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. For what end? This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Isn't that beautiful? Have my word, my life-giving word in your heart. Run to me with your prayers. Ask. And I'm going to give in abundance so that God will be glorified, so that you will know him as I truly know him and remain in him and in us and abound more and more. God wants us to be fruitful people, to increase in our love for him. To experience that love, not just on a Sunday for an hour or so, but throughout the week in the highs and the the, the lows, which is where John turns his attention to love in the church. The third marker John gives alongside the theological and moral is a social marker, a social test, the love for brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's look here just at verses uh, 7 through to 11. The family we love, not hate. A family we love, but not hate. And verses 7 to 8, they sound like a riddle, don't they? The old command that is actually new. What, John, come on, what are you on about? Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard since the beginning. I think by that he means the beginning. That's the beginning of their faith when John had taught them right from the start. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, that's Jesus Christ, and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So this command is both an old and a new one. It's old in that John had taught them it when he first met them and first they first became Christians. So it's not a new message for them, nor is it a new innovation. It's not a strange teaching that John's now slipping into the church. It's not something he's made up. It's as old as the gospel because in verses 9 to 11 show us it's all about God's love. Jesus taught that the law and the prophets were summed up in the law to love God and to love your neighbor. We read that in Matthew 22. He articulates it clearly there. Paul stated, the apostle Paul, that the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.14. So John knows he's saying nothing new. Self-giving love flowing from God is basic. It's extremely hard to live out consistently, but it's what we're called to. What's radically new is that for the first time in human history, that command was lived out perfectly in Jesus Christ. He amplified it. He brought a quality and depth and light to it that we could never have grasped or seen any other way. The Samaritan is the loving neighbor who sacrificially cares for the wounded Jew. The father runs to the prodigal son and forgives and restores him, bearing the cost himself. That is Jesus amplifying this love for the other. The love for the lost, the love for his enemy. The real surprise is the next two words, and you. Sorry, John? Uh, is that a typo? Is that a slip? And you? No, no. It's no error. All those who belong to Jesus, who are in his love, are empowered with his resources to live his way. We receive his light and it reflects in a world that needs it as his members of his kingdom. At the moment, I appreciate it can feel like the darkness is really enveloping and crowding in can't it on an international level the political situations that are going on the war in Ukraine escalating the conflict in Palestine and Israel just hearing of the attacks that happened over the last few days so many families destroyed by conflict and war politicians that don't seem to have any anchorage any ethics one rule for them and not for everyone else, and they're dark times. Cost of living. anxiety around that. And remember, as we're reading this inspired word from God, it wasn't written in a vacuum. John wasn't on a sun lounger by a beach with a Malibu and Coke in hand just penning some ideas. He was under it, under Roman oppression. His churches were being squeezed by Rome. And yet, what does he say? Those glorious words, look, the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. This is where our hearts and minds, you see, brothers and sisters, need to be focused. The light of Christ's kingdom is breaking out in and with you that's John's conviction part of that love is seen within the church so from verse 9 we're told anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. You see, when the church loves as Jesus did, and when the church is relying on his resources, it is a beacon. It is like a searchlight, a lighthouse, however you want to think of it. This room with all the lights blazing, every spotlight on. Look around you right now. Left, right, up, down, no heads are turning. Look, look around. Doing the creepy, oh dear, this is what's he saying. We don't look, we only look to the front in church. These are the people we're called to love. What a glorious challenge. It's one that needs a miracle, doesn't it? It one it's one that needs this life-changing light. We sang earlier, lead me in your love to those around me. You know, the thing with songs is they feel so great, I love singing them, but they require action. You can't sing it and then not do it. And love is always being redefined, though. Here's the challenge, isn't it? As the professor and preacher Sinclair Ferguson observed, the Western mindset for love means toleration. I think that's kind of the space we're living in at the moment. Just letting people be, he puts it. But when you think about it, tolerance is such a weak virtue. Imagine as your pastor, I I welcomed you to church today by just saying, "I, I want to know how much I tolerate you. And thank you for tolerating me. You see, verses 9 to 11, they sound offensive in our our culture, don't they? They sound offensive. This love and hate is way too strong. Can't we have that sort of in-between, just as Grace said at the start, the sort of Manchester in-between day? Great, it's cloudy, but it's not pouring down with rain, and it's not too sunny, so I won't get too burnt or something like this. Can we have one of those in-between cloudy days? Well, what's the equivalent for love and hate? We're called to so much more than tolerance, as the pastor Kevin DeYoung said. We're called to so much more than tolerance. As Jesus picks up a towel and bowl of water in John chapter 13 and starts washing the dirty feet of the disciples, including Judas, he is showing the love of a servant saviour biblical love doesn't flinch at dirty sinners washed by jesus's blood it starts by seeing them as precious to jesus it starts by saying a mindset and seeing and living the truth that these people are precious to jesus you are you are redeemed believing in him you are being redeemed by his Spirit. And if we love people, we see them that way in our church. If we look outside and for those who are still with big questions, still pushing against God, still uh, wanting to live life their own way, rejecting that truth, we still love. Because God loves those who are his enemies. That's where he came to rescue us. If we love people, therefore, we, we will see how to avoid sinning against them. We want to do what we can to stop them and us from stumbling and falling. You see, hatred looks like Cain killing Abel. That's a picture that John uses later in chapter 3, verse 12. That is a reality, a brother killing a brother out of envy. But we can easily say, oh, I haven't done that, so I'm okay, I'm, I'm loving But hatred also looks like not caring about the spiritual drift in our church family. Hatred looks like ignoring the selfish behaviors we see in ourselves and in each other. Hatred looks like creating practical distance rather than friendship because it suits us. Hatred in Christian community can look like just harboring a bitterness that changes the other person that we're bitter with, to see them justifiably as an irredeemable ogre. The Bible commentator and scholar John Stott put it so well, his pastoral heart comes out here, such good counsel, when he says, hatred distorts our perspective. We do not first misjudge people and then hate them as a result our view of them is already jaundiced by our hatred. It is love which sees straight, which thinks clearly and makes us balanced in our outlook and judgments and conduct. We need Christ's love to heal the jaundiced in us. Do you long for more of this love in your life? To learn how to do this, to live it out more consistently. How how can we, how can you be strong and conquer in a time when Christianity may become more marginalized? When anger and intolerance at classic Christian Orthodox beliefs, may well increase because they're seen as so unpopular and intolerant and against the stream of the society that we're in. How can we be strong? What does thriving look like in that context? What do we do when there are conflicts and hurts in our own fellowships? What are the markers of life there? Well, surely it starts by going back to John's Gospel and seeing Jesus, who conquers by kneeling, by humbling, by loving the unlovely, even to death on a cross. We start loving by receiving this love as Dear little children, dear little children, who are so wrapped up in that love, we desire to obey his life-giving commands. Let's pray. Father, quite simply, we come to you and ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would do that work in our lives of implanting your word so deeply with such strong roots in the power of your spirit that you would keep transforming us, redeeming us to be your servants, work in us to serve each other, to love one another, to put hatred to death, to pursue you in obedient love. Lord, your spirit's going to give us opportunities to do that this week in our workplaces, with our family, with the people that have hurt us, with those we'd like to put some distance between. So give us discernment and wisdom and insight as to how to walk as Jesus did in these painful circumstances. Help us, Lord, to go further in your love, to experience something of this redemption, this light that you promise, that is already breaking out and breaking through because your kingdom has come in Jesus' glorious resurrection and will be fully seen and known when he returns. Give us that love to pursue you in obedience and joy. Amen.